This is UCD Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week, we'll be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders, to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and the world. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist and lecturer at UCD College of Business. Now, many of us are picking over the entrails of COP26, asking, was there much progress made? Was it enough? Was it adequate? Is it going to get done? Is it going to get implemented? None of the answers are necessarily obvious or resounding, and the debate will continue, and maybe that's the nature of it. A lot of us are also picking over the entrails of energy prices as we see oil going back to new highs in recent weeks. And of course, the winter is here. People are looking at reliability. Can their own household get through to the spring and the warmer temperatures without incurring these enormous bills? It's fair to say energy is probably, in its widest sense, the debating topic of the next few months, and it will continue after that. We've had the subject aired on this podcast on a number of occasions from all sorts of different perspectives. Afterwards, often we've got texts and a few tweets and so on asking, well, a lot of this is very interesting, but how does it relate back to the ordinary household? How does it relate back to life on the ground? And we've been looking for quite a while to get a person onto the podcast who could at least help us with some of those questions. And I think today's guest is exactly that person. And that is Dr. Paula Carroll. She is an electric engineer based here in at the business school. She's an associate professor in business analytics and operations research. She's also a member of the UCD Energy Institute. And her research happens to be, yes, energy systems and how they are integrated. She also looks a lot at the whole area of heat pumps, which are one of the often preferred solutions to some of our climate problems in a household context. She's also uh, been following the debate very closely at COP26 and the whole progress towards decarbonisation of world economies. You're very welcome to the podcast, Dr. Carroll. Thank you very much, Emmett. It's lovely uh, to talk to you. We've got so much to talk about. We, we've got about half an hour time to slice up between the two of us. Hopefully we can get to some of the uh, topics that I've mentioned. It's such a huge area. And it goes from the global, uh, you know, COP26 and all these uh, politicians and uh, NGO leaders flying in. Some of the politicians on their, on their private jets, some of the uh, media cynically noted. But some decent progress was made, to be fair. And we're also looking here locally at, you know, a very kind of, um, I suppose, as a fragile picture in terms of the reliability of our electricity supply. Lots of talk in the media about uh, amber alerts and so on. So we're hopefully... That won't turn out to be a problem, but maybe we go right back to the start and, and just to get a get a take on your optimism or pessimism after the COP26 meetings. Um, just tell me where you're at. You're an electrical engineer by training, so you, you follow these things very closely. In terms of transitioning our economy to, to a whole new world, are, are, where are you on the, the spectrum of optimism at this stage? Probably halfway between pessimistic and optimistic, Emmett. I think, yes, definitely people give out about uh, these um, summits. Uh, but I think definitely coming together, there is much more focus and a better understanding of the nature of the challenge of what we have to actually do but also the opportunities that will come through for countries like Ireland and businesses in Ireland and individual homeowners in Ireland uh, to play their part and actually um, make some progress in this overall energy transition. So reasonably optimistic. One of the things that is being looked at at a local level, and, and you happen to be doing a lot of research on this, is, is the idea of heat pumps. So let's go through Ireland's households at the moment. Most of us are either on an oil burner of some description, gas, 
Um, maybe people are burning wood. Um, there are, yes, people still uh, burning other substances they shouldn't be at all. And of course, there there are during the winter, some people just have a simple plug-in using the electricity directly. So we have to replace a lot of that with heat pumps. That's what the government's official, the kind of the central pillar of what we need to do with households. You've actually done research on them. So what's your own view of, of how far they can go and what's their utility to solving some of these problems we're talking about? I think heat pumps will play a, a role in how we satisfy our heating needs. So if, if we come up for a level just for a second of looking at what are the overall energy uh, demands um, and where do, is that energy supplied from, the demand for energy is for doing things like transport, so moving things around the place, uh, for heat, uh, for heating our homes and for powering industry and so on. Uh, and the heating demand is one of the sectors that is responsible for a lot of the greenhouse gas emissions. So as you say, Emmett, at the moment, we heat our homes in Ireland uh, mainly using uh, fossil fuels. So either uh, oil or gas, if you're on the gas uh, network, or um, some homes still using uh, solid fuels. So the idea is that we'll try and move that to cleaner ways of satisfying the heating needs so in other countries, they use things like district heating schemes. We haven't been good at that in Ireland, but we're starting to explore that. Um, we will hopefully move towards using more of these heat pumps. Um, and in our own research, we have found that where they're used in uh, well-retrofitted homes or highly insulated homes, they are quite efficient. The coefficient of performance measures how much heat energy do you get out for the corresponding uh, electricity energy that you have to put in to run your heat pump. Uh, and once it's above a, a, a COP level of 2.5, uh, the EU deems that as renewable heat. So you're using your electricity to take the heat energy from either the air outside or the, the ground outside and convert that to heat in your home. And in our research, we have found that in those retrofitted homes, the heat energy um, is deemed to be renewable. So we achieve at these coefficient of performance levels of about 2.7. And the EU level to be deemed renewable is uh, 2.5. So, so what you're saying, Paula, is if we can get insulation done first, you know, particularly on a mass scale, and, and obviously there's going to be big demands for, for labour, like who, who who's going to do all the, the insulating and taking out the old stuff and putting in the new. But if we can find some way around that, and then you layer the, the heat pumps on top of that earlier work, that, that could get a lot of households to, to a good place. It definitely can. So, I mean, not every home needs to install a heat pump. It, you know, in the urban areas where homes are on the gas uh, network, that's a relatively efficient way of heating your home. But for homes that are using oil or solid fuel, or homes in maybe rural areas that are on solid fuel, for example, those might be the homes that would be suitable for both retrofitting and then as part of that retrofit, maybe also installing a heat pump. Yeah, and you were saying before we, we started the conversation, there's a lot of interest in electric cars. Uh, it, it's a topic people actually have a, a real consumer interest in, but heat pumps less so. So we, I think the average householder may not know much about how they work and, and the technology involved. Yeah, so they're relatively new to us here in Ireland. We only have about 40,000 of them uh, installed. In other countries, in the Scandinavian countries, for example, where they have much colder weather and they have a, a longer history of using these heat pumps, so in a nutshell, really, they're a bit like a fridge that works in reverse. So you use some electricity uh, to pump the um, refrigerants through a, a system that um, extracts or exchanges uh, heat from a renewable source, such as the air outside. So you might see them um, in 
some places, they look like an air conditioning unit outside uh, and it uh, extracts the heat from the air outside and then pumps it through uh, to, into your uh, home's heating system. So working like a fridge uh, in reverse to take the heat from outside and pump it to your heat, uh, home inside. And do you think that they have to be necessarily big? Like, is there a particular size they have to be per the, per the size of the house itself? Or, or, or are they shrinking down in size as technology develops? They're related to the size of the house. So if you have a big house, you need a relatively big heat pump. But about um, eight kilowatts or something would do uh, an ordinary um, three-bed uh, semi-home. Uh, the, the size of the unit, as I say, it's it's kind of like the outdoor unit is like the size of an air conditioning unit that you would see. Um, if you had a big house, you'd obviously need something uh, bigger. We have a nice one down in uh, Black Rock on the Smurfit campus. There's a, a very big heat pump down there that's used to heat the restaurant. Ah, OK. Well, I'll go and have a look. I've walked right by without noticing, so that'll, that'll be a little field trip for myself. And Paula, in terms of the, the future, looking at the energy transition, we, we want to step up, uh, as you say, a bit higher up than just the households alone. Um, there's this interesting concept I've seen running through some of your research called the energy trilemma, which I always like to try and bundle things up and organise them into, into smaller little concepts. Can, can you give our listeners some idea of what that means and, and how it's a good guide to, to how we can solve some of, of these problems? The idea of talking about a trilemma is that we understand that when we're addressing something like this um, energy transition, there are different perspectives. There are different people, uh, you know, acting together who have different objectives um, so we're trying to balance up both the objectives of all the different actors, um, but also what we actually need to achieve. So the idea of the energy trilemma is that there are kind of competing objectives. One is around the security of uh, supply. So when we're doing this energy transition, if we switch to renewables, we still need to make sure that the lights stay on. So the energy system itself has to stay uh, secure. And the energy system isn't like other systems where you have electricity uh, flowing um, it flows according to the, the laws of nature, if you like, but we need to be very careful with that. So electricity is something that needs to be managed carefully. So managing the security of supply is a technical challenge. So that's one of the um, aspects of the energy trilemma is this security. Uh, the other aspect um, that we're concerned with is the, uh, the greenness. So we'd like a, a clean, um, sustainable uh, future uh, energy system. So that's the other aspect of how do we actually um, bring in the renewables onto the system. So there's a kind of a balancing act. Uh, and then the third um, apex, if you like, of the trilemma is the affordability and the equity of the energy transition. So um, a lot of these things will cost money to change. So we talked about a heat pump and we talked about retrofitting a home. So we have to think about who has the funds uh, to do that. So the three apexes, if you like, of this trilemma are the security of supply, uh, the carbon emissions, the greenness uh, and the affordability. So they're kind of competing against each other. And when we decide policies um, or decide actions we're going to take, we try and balance up those three things uh, in competition with each other. And as you say, the, the, taking the two to the left hand side, the security and the sustainability, isn't that the most difficult one? Because as you say, renewable sources, particularly wind, it's transient. It, it, it's not always reliable. And uh, traditionally, you've had to back it up with fossil fuels, in Ireland's case, combined gas cycle plants, you know, then there's a good few of them. Like, how, how do we get out of that, that that bind where you'll always have to have, or will you always have to have some fossil fuels backing up the renewables, or is that not the case? In the latest climate action plan, the government's target is that 80% of our electricity 
will be created from uh, renewable sources, which are quite right that the renewable sources are much more variable. Um, so we did have Storm Arwen over the past uh, couple of days touching on us. So we had some windy weather uh, and when it's windy, we can get lots of um, electricity from our um, wind turbines. Uh, but when it's not windy, um, we can't get uh, so much uh, electricity from wind. Um, so it's about trying to balance up how we actually manage these renewable electricity um, sources. Uh, they are much more variable, so it does give us more challenging optimization problems to try and balance them up uh, together. Um, but just to kind of point out that as well as renewable wind, uh, we also have potential to have um, uh, uh, photovoltaic panels on our uh, homes and on our schools and on our, our buildings, which are close to where we live. And every day the sun does shine. It mightn't look like it. So we're um, we're at five degrees and a cloudy day today. And in Dublin here, we're at 53 degrees north. But we still get some solar energy from those solar panels. So there is a balance from the variable sources. But some of the other options are to include things like um, storage. So when we have a lot of wind power, we might store that in some banks of uh, batteries that we can then call on when uh, the wind drops or in the nighttime when the sun isn't shining. So there's a whole load of new technologies, but there's also a whole load of new um, management techniques we need to use to balance up and match the supply uh, to the demand. One last thing, if I can say it to you, Emmett, is this idea that we have that we might ask our customers to change their pattern of usage. So we might start using um, tariffs as incentives that when the electricity is abundant, uh, we might have a low tariff that people could uh, use their electricity at that time. Uh, and when the um, renewables are not so available, then the tariff might go higher. And that is kind of a tariff and a stick approach to encourage people to manage their demand. And we talk about demand response schemes to encourage people to use electricity in a slightly different way. And they'll be all aspects of our future energy system. Yeah, and I mean, that, that there's a certain amount of that already done, you know, in terms of night storage, you know, you sort of take, take down into a storage heater and then emit the heat during the day, you've taken it down, the, the cheaper power overnight. So that's trying to spread out the demand and make it, a, you know, kind of more broad-based, isn't that, isn't that the idea? So they talk about peak shaving and, and valley filling. So instead of having the demand be so um, peaky, so it, at the moment, the pattern generally is that uh, we get up in the morning and there's a high electricity demand, people making the breakfast, having a shower or whatever it is. And then that tends to dip down uh, at lunchtime when we're all at work. Uh, and then in the evening time, there's another peak when we go home and we make our dinner and turn on the TV and there's lots of activities. So it does have a kind of very regular pattern. And what th these demand response schemes try to do is to better manage that profile so that it's less variable and it's easier to, to manage the system. Now, Paula, one of the areas that's gathering a fair bit of noise and public debate is the users of the grid. So so we don't have a big industrial economy, or certainly traditionally we haven't, but but we do have data centres that have come in in recent years. And, you know, on one level, it's, it's a great success to be able to attract this inward investment, but it is having sort of externalities, as the economists would call them, difficulties, which is just they are heaping a lot of extra demand onto the grid. And that's making it hard for those grid managers to, to manage all these different um, resource takers. What's, what's your whole reaction to that debate? And is there some way for us to have some of this 
um, capacity still there from the data centres or is it just the grid needs to give way? There has to be a compromise where the, the householder goes first and then these other sites would come down secondly. How, how do you see that whole debate? It's another interesting point. So it, it has been an opportunity for Ireland. We have had, you know, our, as you say, Emma, we, ha- we don't have a history of um, heavy industry. So we haven't had the high demand for, um, you know, making cars and things like that historically. Um, But it has been an opportunity for us. We have many multinationals located in Ireland and a lot of these data centres would also be, you know, associated with those multinationals. So one of the, you know, opportunities might be to use one of the follow the clock type types of satisfying of those data centre type response. So they might only be used from Ireland at times when there's enough energy on the Irish system and at other times, those companies that operate the data centers would uh, serve from some other location across the globe. So it wouldn't always be coming um, from Ireland. Um, it would be at, at a at global level. So it, it does mean that there's a, a complex supply and demand uh, picture, um, which gives us an interesting uh, challenge. There are other things I suppose to mention as well about the, the data centers is that back to our question about heat um, and our overall big picture of energy supply and demand, uh, there may be opportunities to link the data centres to district heating schemes and use some of the heat from the data centres to feed into local um, heating schemes. So again, helping the overall supply and demand of energy um, at a higher level. Tell me a little bit about these district heating schemes. You've mentioned them a few times. I don't know anything about them at all. So if you could just give our listeners the benefit of how, how they operate. I know they're reasonably well known in, in a European context. As we were saying at the beginning, um, is that each of us individually heats our own homes in the main. In in other countries, they have kind of a centralised scheme that might be operated by, you know, their equivalent of their county council. And it means that in the same way that we get gas and electricity fed into our homes here, uh, you would have heating uh, coming into your home, but it would be managed centrally. And it's one of those you know, things that could have economies of scale rather than everybody individually doing it themselves. If you have a central system that can supply that uh, heat, they, they haven't really been used here, partly because of the nature of our housing stock and the dispersed nature of our um, communities. So in other places where you have high density uh, city areas, it, 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 they've been very effective um, at using uh, district heating schemes to provide heating uh, in that district. So it's something that we're, we're looking at and we're trying to see um, how we could do it in Ireland. Yeah, like the big apartment blocks that we're seeing more and more down in Dublin's Docklands in particular. I mean, is there particular heating solutions for that kind of development where you've got hundreds, maybe even thousands of people in, in a very tight, dense area? Is is there some things that you can do there that you, you just aren't able to do in more dispersed urban environments? Well, de- yeah, so definitely in dispersed profiles of housing, it doesn't make any sense to put in a district heating scheme. Um, we, we do need to think about when we're putting these things in terms of planning um, because we need to kind of put them in first and then build the apartments. And we haven't, we haven't done that historically. So it does mean we need to think about how we can retrofit uh, things like district heating schemes. In the same way as we're talking about having to retrofit our homes now to bring them up to a higher energy efficiency standard so that then we can do the other things like heat pumps and so on. Um, but there, there are you know, different pieces of research going on at the moment and different uh, prototypes of trying to see um, where we could fit them in and how efficient they would be in an Irish context. Now, Paula, you're an electrical engineer by your profession. You're looking at how we can integrate a lot of these um, different systems and make them 
system fit into society and vice versa. Uh, t- technology is great, but uh, when it gets to the human part, <laughs> that's obviously the, the biggest challenge. One of, one of the things that will always kind of trip these systems up is the cost of the energy input, you know, the, the, the actual fuel source you're using. And, and we've seen um, energy prices soar. I mean, I remember last year during the lockdown, we actually went to zero dollars, at least theoretically, for a barrel of oil. Now I've seen prices heading back over 85, 90. So the price of fuel, obviously, we talked about renewables. We are going to be, you know, fingers crossed, touch wood, etc. We are going to be losing, using a lot less fossil fuels, but that doesn't necessarily mean the price is going to go down as the usage goes down because we are running out of these and the way people manipulate prices and the various pinch points in markets and so on. So do, do you think that's going to be a big challenge that we almost sort of, we, we sort of think of oh, fossil fuels, they're on the way out and we kind of look over at a different direction. But meanwhile, the price is going to be simmering up, up and up and up all the time. And people will still be very dependent on these fossil fuels for at least a few years, if, if not longer. Do you think that's kind of one of the one of the, the big challenges of our time to try and kind of get that balancing act right? The overall energy transition, we do need to rebalance it so that we don't depend so much on the fossil fuels. We're going to be pushed in that direction. Yes, the costs are going to be high, but there are also opportunities coming with that. So for new jobs within this uh, sector, just trying to get that supply and demand uh, right uh, is indeed going to be a challenge, but it does come with the opportunities. And I think one of the opportunities is to start educating people about how um, each person, whether it's an individual in their own home or small businesses, uh, what are the opportunities for them uh, to see how they can participate in this transition? Um, And maybe just to go to your point about, you know, the, the prices and the dependency on the fossil fuel, the legislation, if you like, is going to push us towards we're not going to be able to afford to use the fossil fuels because the governments and and different sectors are going to have to pay uh, carbon taxes. So that's going to be a a push, if you like. What will be a pull will be that the new technologies will become more affordable. So things like the heat pumps will become more affordable. Already things like the PV panels uh, are becoming more and more affordable and things like battery storage are becoming more and more uh, affordable. So I think there will be a push and a pull uh, that will make us go in the correct direction, if you like, the correct direction being less dependency on fossil fuel uh, and more use of um, the renewable types of sources. And you can see certain sectors are expressing grave concern about the pace of the transition. Um, We've seen truckers and haulage firms out on the streets um, just a few days before we were recording this particular podcast. And Ireland's farming community are also expressing you know, I suppose nervousness uh, to put it put it mildly about the the kind of transition that lies lies ahead of us all. What's your view as a sort of a person who studies energy and the systems behind it? Uh, do Do you think we can carry groups that will feel at least challenged, if not excluded, by the process itself? There's so many different groups and sectors or actors, as we call them, and each of them do have their own kind of interests, and they, you know, in one way they're so um, involved in, in their own individual uh, sector that that's their primary interest. But it does then fall to governments to be work at a higher level that kind of balances up the interests of the different groups. And yes, each of them have their own individual uh, concerns. But as I say, for each of those groups that have concerns and, and challenges, you know, for each of those challenges, there are corresponding opportunities. So, you know, within the uh, agricultural sector, 
Um, yes, there are significant challenges about how they move to lower emissions production methods. Likewise, in the um, transport sector, lower emissions um, modes of transport are coming. Uh, so it will be a matter of trying to adapt to the challenges. Change is hard for everyone, but hopefully at a higher level, we can um, find a balancing um, mechanism that between the different sectors, we, we balance all these um, change requirements in a fair manner. Yeah, I suppose that the big the big challenge in the, in the agriculture sector was so dependent on beef farming, dairying, that, you know, that particular type of farming. So we're in the we're in farming and then we're in the wrong end, uh, you know, in the vertical commas of the farming sector. So that sort of turning that around while keeping people's incomes because somewhere around where they are at the moment, that, that's going to be a big political challenge more than anything else, isn't it? It's a political and a, and a people challenge. But maybe one thing just to mention uh, in relation to kind of the agricultural sector is one thing that has been happening recently. And these are very new ideas, is that groups um, within the farming community have been coming together and looking at the idea of installing solar panels on their um, dairy sheds and so on and participating in the energy markets in what are called uh, renewable energy communities. So coming together in, in a way uh, that the community can benefit from these renewable energy uh, sources. So not so much seeing it as a challenge, but seeing it as an opportunity uh, to generate energy locally for their own needs, but also to possibly achieve some profit from. So um, there are opportunities but that go with all of those challenges. Now, Paula, you're 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 across the whole energy field. We can <laughs> we can hear that for the last twenty minutes, but I haven't really asked you much about your own research because you're doing some fascinating stuff. Can can you give us listeners idea of what against the background of what we've just discussed, the kind of projects you're currently working on yourself? Because I know some of them are really quite quite leading edge. Yes, yeah, so we've been looking at a couple of different projects. So collaborating across um, the um, faculties here in UCD. So a lot of work with um, the School of Electrical Engineering. Electrical and Electronics Engineering and the um, Computer Science and over in Maths as well. So lots of the work that I do is multidisciplinary. So um, I lecture in business analytics and operations research, and that's about creating mathematical models of usually business problems. So where you want to maybe optimize uh, something. Um, so we create these mathematical models and then we come up with the algorithms to solve those models and make recommendations for the business. Um, and we've been applying those techniques in areas like looking at heat pumps to see, um, do they operate um, according to how we would, would expect? So a lot of these things are designed, say, in a lab. Uh, and then when you put those things into people's homes, as you were saying, Emmet, we have the people aspect of things. So what do people actually do with heat pumps when you put them in their homes? Uh, and can we still expect to achieve uh, those efficiency uh, savings? So we've been looking at some of that research. I also have another very interesting research project with uh, a consortium that members come from Latvia, Belgium uh, and France. And we're looking at uh, renewable energy communities. And that one is a very recent project because, as I say, all the legislation for a lot of these schemes um, is, is, is coming. It's new. There, there have to be a lot of changes to how the system um, is operated. So we need the legislation first and then we need network codes uh, and then we need uh, algorithms to uh, manage all of these um, balancing of uh, supply and uh, renewable uh, with the renewables. So that's the, my, my most recent project is one about uh, supporting energy communities with um, algorithms and analytics. 
fascinating work and I, I love the way you can back up <laughs> you can really back up your, your energy uh, commentary and your reportage on these various things with the actual research in the field experience as well it's, it's a nice mix to have I think you'll be pretty busy for the next five to ten years in this area you're certainly not in a sunset industry that's for sure this is just going to grow and develop and the debate will continue uh, great tips as well and insights into heat pumps for homes uh, on this podcast today so our householders who listen in have been asking us for someone to come on and discuss that. So it sounds like you're overall reasonably optimistic about that technology. So uh, I, I take your endorsement well, and, and we, we think it's a good one to hear. Thanks for coming on the podcast. We'll no doubt to hear from you again after the next uh, <laughs> big global confidence on energy and see what progress we've made at that stage. But for now, thank you very much, Dr. Paula Carroll. Thanks, Emmett. Lovely to talk to you.